This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. So we obviously have to talk about TikTok, more specifically the proposed restrictions that lawmakers have been discussing lately. There's clearly a lot to unpack here. I mean, more than can fit in one episode. But I want to start the conversation from the point of view of a TikTok creator, and not just any creator, but one who's been plugged into this issue from the beginning and who was actually in the room during the congressional hearing with TikTok CEO. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. In the unlikely case you haven't heard about what's going on, there's been increasing pressure from lawmakers who want to impose restrictions or just fully ban TikTok from operating in the U.S. The rationale is that TikTok poses a security threat because it's owned by the Chinese tech company ByteDance. So there are concerns that the Chinese government, which has been at increasing odds with the U.S., is gaining massive amounts of data from U.S. citizens and has the power to push propaganda through the app. Last month, TikTok CEO Shozi Chu testified before Congress, and you can imagine how that went. Mr. Chu, does TikTok access the home Wi-Fi network? Only if the user turns on the Wi-Fi. I, I'm sorry, I may not understand the So if I have a TikTok app on my phone and my phone is on my home Wi-Fi network, does TikTok access that network? It will have to, to access the network to get connections to the internet, if that's the question. So, yeah, I mean, it felt like a wasted opportunity to ask real questions about TikTok and to recognize the impact these policies will have on creators, like V Spear, who was actually in the room for the hearing. Better known by their handle, Under the Desk News, V Spear is a TikTok creator who's amassed 3 million followers by giving you the news you need to know, and that includes the news about TikTok. Well, V, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we have so much ground to cover. I know that the main topic of conversation in hand is the overall conversation around banning, the possibility of banning TikTok. But before we get into all that, you know, I've been following your content, honestly, since you probably have started on TikTok. What, back in 2021, maybe? 2020. And 2020, yeah. So I remember... Who is this person like under the desk? Like, give me what I need to know, honestly. And so I would love to just start with getting a sense of like how you wound up on TikTok. Yeah. So like everyone else, it was an early pandemic. We were looking for ways to entertain ourselves and find community. Prior to being a TikToker, I was the director of impact for the James Beard Foundation. So I did a lot of work in teaching chefs about food policy, how to lobby their congressperson for like more allocations for small businesses and for food industry stuff. And so when the pandemic came, I was completely cut off from our community. And so I started making cooking videos where I was teaching people how to apply for PPP and like how to apply for the shuttered venue monies. And then that evolved into me just telling people what had happened that day. At the time, all of the news anchors were home and they were broadcasting from their homes. So I didn't want to sit at the desk and have people think I was like some person from NBC. I was just be your friend who was under the desk and here to like help you learn about what happened today without traumatizing you. <laughs> Emphasis on not traumatizing people. Yeah. And knowing that so many people, specifically, you know, Gen Alpha, Gen Z, get their news from TikTok, which I know a lot of people bemoan, which me, myself, I don't. I think it's wonderful to have creators such as yourself mm -hmm. meet audiences where they're at mm -hmm. and give them 
information, give them, you know, good information that's like sourced and whatnot. So, I mean, for you, it's one thing to have millions of followers, but it's a different thing to really be the beacon of news for some people in an era where it's never been more important to pay attention to the news. Mm -hmm. So how how do you navigate that? How do you wrap your mind around not only having the sizable following, but being this arbiter of news for people? So a lot of folks will say, I think it's scary that one in four Americans get their news from TikTok. And to mm -hmm. that, I want to remind folks, when are people going to TikTok? They're going there in the off moments they have or in their quiet moments at night or maybe when they're going to the bathroom. All those times that we used to maybe read a newspaper or something, we were just getting a singular source of information. So folks are coming to TikTok and they're getting news. And what I love about getting news from TikTok is a lot of the citizen journalism that's happening or a lot of the stuff I'm doing or aggregating of headlines that some other folks are doing, you're seeing a screenshot of the article, and then you're seeing the creator in front of that article saying, hey, I just read this in the Washington Post. This is what I heard. What did you hear? And then someone else pops up with an article from The Guardian. They're like, actually, I read in this one that that information's outdated, and this is what's happening now. You're seeing legacy news, news that we're supposed to trust, that we've been told is vetted and being conducted by the most professional and educated journalists of our time. And we're kind of like hype men for them. We're like, yo, Aaron Logan's got a killer piece in the LA <laughs> Times today. You got to read what she's saying about the Restrict Act. And so we're putting a name to these reporters and we're helping these legacy publications when they do good reporting, mm -hmm. get even more eyeballs on that story. When you said hype man, anything that came after that, I just played in my head. No, like I am the flavor so. flavor of news. <laughs> Correct. I am the flavor flavor of news. And that's how I want you to see me. <laughs> That's how I'm only going to see you from now on. Yep. So, we get a big clock for under the desk. Right. <laughs> I mean, okay. So, you know, flavor, flavor aside, let's, let's talk about this proposed ban on TikTok, right? I mean, this is not the first time we've heard about it. This, this was something that Donald Trump tried to get done in 2020, but it stalled in court and was eventually thrown out. But now here we are under President Joe Biden and his administration talking about a TikTok ban again. So, when you heard about all this happening, I mean, what, what were your initial thoughts? So my initial thought was an emotional one. I thought about the community I was going to lose. I thought about the platform we were going to lose. I thought about the access to information and freedom of speech. I thought about my friends who have small businesses like making cards that they sell on TikTok that has really like changed their lives. I think about the life-changing things that happen on TikTok where we see someone in a difficult situation, the community rally around them with mutual aid and all of a sudden everything is okay. And I thought that was so difficult to lose all of that. I was also really Really concerned about the idea of 150 million Americans, a third of Americans, being removed from global conversations. TikTok's big in America, but it's big everywhere. We're talking about a billion global users. And I find it very unusual that any government would want to remove the American public from a global conversation platform. So that was concerning to me. And then I got into the idea of like, this is against the First Amendment, and this is against commerce. And then I was like, well, how are they even going to do this? Is there just a bill that's going to straight up ban TikTok? That feels wildly unpopular. And it's not. The idea of a TikTok ban was the front for this piece of legislation called the Restrict Act, mm -hmm. which I think is a terribly written piece of legislation and gives the government broad overreach powers that should concern everyone. And I think that Congress and the people who have put their name on this bill grossly misunderstood not just TikTok as a platform and what it means to the community and what it means economically to this country, but also the intelligence of the American people. 
we spent the last three years educating them on how to be media literate, how to be government savvy, and how to write to your congressperson and activate. So <laughs> they really did not see this coming. And Mark Warner, I mean, is the one who's put his name on it the most, so he's the one I call out the most, coming out with, well, the kids like it, but they'll go to another platform. If TikTok were somehow to drop away tomorrow, whether it's an American company, a French company, an Indian company, there will be a replacement site where people can still be creative and uh, earn that kind of living. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh, Mr. Warner. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. <laughs> all due respect to you, sir. I worked on getting you elected last time. I care about you as a Democrat. Uh, but that is a... That is a deductive and dismissive and horrible take on what TikTok right. is. So let's talk about the Restrict Act because yes. you know this this was introduced last month by a bipartisan group of senators, and it would basically give the U.S. Commerce Secretary the power to regulate technology coming from adversarial countries, which yes. today they are listed as North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, Russia, and of course China. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I know you've expressed your concerns with it, as have so many others. There's been a lot of blowback against mm -hmm. Restrict Act because of how broad it all seems. And the bill's lead sponsor, Virginia Senator Mark Warner, has pushed back on some of those criticisms, particularly when people say they worry about how U.S. citizens will be penalized if they work around the restrictions mm -hmm. and like, what does that mean and whatnot? And, you know, he has gone so far as to say that it's disinformation. I heard that. The idea that this is somehow going after individual Americans is a flat out lie. Uh, this is part of the disinformation campaign that's going on. We are going after foreign-owned corporations from these six countries and potentially their executive leadership, but there is no ability for Restrict to go after an individual American user. You know, I, let's just kind of unpack that a little bit more because mm -hmm. I understand this is just a bill right now. This is just sure. something that they've introduced. This will change. That's And, you know, also Senator Warner said TikTok will get its day in court. But as it stands right now, what are your biggest concerns with it? And do you have any hope that it will be edited into something that is mm -hmm. workable and, and, and something that won't, you know, be the Patriot Act all over again, like so many people are concerned about? You bring up a good point. The Patriot Act 2.0, it's being called. Um, here's my thing with the Restrict Act. It's 56, 58 pages. It's a very large piece of legislation. It's a huge bill, lots of words in it. And it seems like Senator Warner, if I can project on him, may have forgotten the words he put into his own bill. Because the fear that people have that if you were to use a VPN to usurp any kind of ban to be able to access TikTok would result in a $250,000 fine or 20 years in jail, people feel that way because that language is in the bill. Right. It says any individual company or entity that tries to usurp this will incur this penalty. And I was listening to him on the offline podcast, and he mm -hmm. was saying, um, no, that's disinformation. We would never go after a singular person. Who is we, and how do I know? And if you're not going to do it, then let's take that out. If it's not even on the table, then let's not have that line in there. That seems like an easy one to redline. And it's not just the idea that, like, we need to protect data privacy from these adversarial nations. There's not a whole ton in the bill that lines out what moves would be made to protect the data. There's some lines about how they would be able to audit it, where they'd be able to survey, how they'd be able to annihilate it or shut it off. But there's not a whole ton in there about the structures that they would build to, one, house this astronomical amount of data that is ever-growing, and two, like, 
how TikTok even factors into that. That's like one of a bunch of different apps. What about video games that are owned by Chinese companies? Will you have access to game chat when I'm just talking smack while I'm playing World of Warcraft? I don't mean any of that stuff. Like, don't, don't come don't for me. Don't you, though? You know what I mean? I don't. So, so, you know, I want to put that on record right now. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern from folks to say you are asking for just absolute pure heart trust in the government that they would never, and we know that they have, because of course we experienced the Patriot Act. And I think it's dangerous for the main lines in the Restrict Act to give the government the power of annihilation, because anytime this country has been afraid before, we have reacted by annihilating that entity, Mm -hmm. and that has not served us. And so I don't see how it sets forth any greater privacy for the American public, how it creates any kind of like fairness or equity when it comes to communication and broadly globally. And he doesn't even seem to read his own bill the way that the American public is reading it. And the reaction being, well, you just don't get it. Well, then you should find a better communicator or perhaps make some revisions. Right. And so would you say that there is a need to regulate social media, particularly from quote-unquote adversarial countries because the conversation around you know regulating social media and getting the US up to mm-hmm. up to speed really with like, you know, with the EU, I think I think that's something that is Oh, that's a conversation always worth having just yes. in terms of like, you know, data privacy and whatnot. Mm-hmm. If you got a hold of him to, to, to cross things out, to add things like what, how would you shape the Restrict Act? So what I think we heard was a lot of complaints from Congress to show to that we don't have as much data privacy and protection as the UK or Canada. So the first thing I would want to do is investigate what does the UK and Canada have? What does their constitution say about the ability for a government to even put in those particular restrictions? And what can we take? And what does our constitution, because we are a separate nation, even if we're a similar nation, not allow for? And then I think we can start from there. And then we have to look at, will we ever, as a nation, truly protect users' data? What happens if we do? Because if you're using these free social media platforms, these free chat platforms, nothing is free. There is a currency. And the user's currency on these free platforms, let's say social media, is our data, is the fact that they can predict trends about us. They do know what we like. They sell us ads. Advertisers buy ads on the platform. The platform knows what we do. It's this circle where money is being exchanged. And the currency that you are giving them as a user is your likes and your hates and your feelings, right? So if we were going to protect and firewall user data and and these platforms weren't going to be able to sell it to advertisers or whatever, then where would the money come from? How would they fund these ventures? Would TikTok or social media need to become a public utility and the taxes pay for this to be run, right? I don't know that there's a huge appetite for that. Would we then say, okay, well, TikTok is $14 a month. 14 bucks a month is a lot of money to some folks. And it's a lot of money to a lot of the folks who are on this platform who have found a voice. And so if we're going to paywall social media, then we're going to cut a significant portion of people who benefit from it out and their voices out. And that, to me, seems catastrophic also. Exactly. And this was introduced in 2020, but does it feel a little bit different to you this time? Because we didn't have the Restrict Act come out of these conversations in 2020. And it was under then-President Donald Trump, who God only knows what he was going to ban or talk about Who next. Knows, it didn't right? really feel like this time around it does. And we had, and you know, the TikTok CEO went to a congressional hearing. So does this time around feel any different to you? Or do you think that this will just sort of fritter away in like this, this incessant news cycle that we have? 
the older politicians have always wanted to ban what the kids like, right? Like they wanted to ban Elvis, right? right. Elvis was the problem for the <laughs> right. government. And so the, the government hips. tried, they <laughs> did, they tried <laughs> to ban him. The vice squad came to his shows and then they put him in the United States Army to try and get rid of him. So the fact that the government tries to take away things that kids like has been going on forever and ever and ever. And how does that ever work out? It doesn't, of course, right? So I think some stuff that the government could be doing to show folks that they are acting in good interest is get more of the community's buy-in of to what is TikTok to you. Trying to explain to people what the security issues are and not what they could be in the future. Because this whole idea of like a future potential bad thing that could happen, if the Chinese wanted our data, they would get it and they do get it from plenty of different places. I think it goes back to, again, Congress felt that they were going to be able to sort of throw TikTok ban out there. And we did see a lot of parents say, oh, yeah, it'd probably be good for my kid who's up all night scrolling on it. They went the parents' route. Um, but at the end of the day, the legislation that they drafted to do it is not something the American public will accept. And mm -hmm. so I think that the Restrict Act is further away from being a reality than it was maybe last month and certainly than it was before this hearing because what we saw from Congress was a lot of ignorance and a lot of unpreparedness and a lot of wanting to rush forward with a bill that, one, structurally doesn't hold up and needs lots of revisions, and two, the questions that they asked showed that they weren't actually that deeply prepared to have a conversation about TikTok, never mind more broadly what people do on the internet and how it should or shouldn't be regulated. So I right now feel very strongly that there will not be a TikTok ban. We have seen a lot of politicians come forward that were sort of on the fence about it and say they're not in support of the Restrict Act in its current form, and that while they want to be tough on China or they are tough on China, they recognize that a TikTok ban doesn't necessarily achieve being tough on China, and they're worried that they'll get primaried. It's a very, very unpopular idea to ban TikTok. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from V about watching TikTok CEO Shozi Chu testify before Congress and why they chose to sit right behind him. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. You were actually at the congressional hearing yes. um, as lawmakers were grilling uh, TikTok CEO Shozi Chu. And I only got to watch it from C-SPAN like I normally do for these congressional hearings. So from someone who's actually there, I just want to back up a little bit and get your take. Like, what was the vibe in the room, IRL? So I had this moment and I talked to my wife about it before I went. And she was like, are you sure that you want to do this thing that you're going to do? And I was like, I do. And that thing I wanted to do was sit directly behind Shochu. And she was like, you are a journalist. Like, you have to be impartial here. And you are so close to this. If you sit off his shoulder and you're in those C-SPAN cameras all the time, you are going to look very exclusively aligned with TikTok. Okay. And I was like, I know that. It is a risk I'm willing to take because it's not about what I look like sitting there. It's that the people watching at home see me a comically recognizable part of TikTok that they trust in the room. And also, I made TikToks with a lot of those Congress people, and I wanted them to see me too. 
this conversation that had surrounded the congressional hearing was all about, like, the source code and the data and all these big problems. And it wasn't about the people that use this application. And the people have to factor in. So even though they were going to be looking at him and grilling him out of the corner of their eye for even a second, I wanted them to remember there are people and this matters to these people, and I'm here to represent those people. And I got a couple eyebrow looks from Representative Trahan, who I think actually had some very thoughtful questions for Shochu, and I had done a TikTok with her on public libraries at State of the Union just a month ago. And I think in the end, it was the right choice for me, because you can't talk about this platform and not talk about the people. And so that room was... First of all, it was incredibly hot. There was a lot of <laughs> conflict in the room that people couldn't even see because, like, directly behind me was the Moms for Liberty oh. group. And so they were directly behind me to the left. On this side, I had these Congress people's interns who were like, oh, my God, V, I love you. Just, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and I was like, I love you, too. It's okay. We're going to just get through this as best we can, and hopefully they listen to us, you know? And so there was a lot of that kind of conversation going on. And then this was my first time being in a congressional hearing room in that way. And I just love to watch democracy at work. And I think so many people did come with good faith questions. Like I think of mm. Representative Clark asking about the algorithm and does it silence black and brown voices? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, does it additionally cut them out of compensation opportunities? Mm -hmm. I wanted him to answer that question. Yep. I wanted to answer the question about geo-targeting women's positions and could a stalker or a bad actor somehow find that information? I want an answer to that. Those are real privacy. Those are real algorithm questions. And unfortunately, it ended up just turning into a circus of examples that weren't real, stories that weren't real, evidence that was manufactured that just completely distracted from what could have been a really good accountability hearing. Right. There are some valid, valid concerns that people yes. have about the platform. And like you said, it would have been really nice to use that opportunity. There's a CEO. He doesn't do much of anything, really, in terms right. of press and like being like a public of like a front facing mm -hmm. figure for this company. So it's like this was this this seemed like a squandered opportunity. It did. Saying like, oh, does TikTok connect to my Wi-Fi? Like, come on. It was such a waste of the people's time. And uh. it was unfortunate because there is so much we need to hold TikTok accountable for. And that would have been a great time to to expose it. Right. And, you know, one one other thing that isn't, again, not necessarily new, but something that has kind of re-entered conversation is Project Texas, which, yeah. of course, is just like $1.5 billion push, I believe, mm -hmm. to make sure that TikTok stores its data in the U.S., specifically in Texas. And so for you, just having an understanding of of Project Texas, like, do you think that that is a viable solution to this issue of data privacy? Mm -hmm. I think it's a great start. I think it's a great skeleton to build on. That's a good way to put it. A good, it's a, a wonderful skeleton. start. Yeah. It's, a, it's a nice skeleton. It's a good idea. I like the idea of there being these firewalls and these auditors that can oversee the data to make sure that it's not being manipulated or used in bad ways, to keep checks and balances on employees. Um, I would love to know a little bit more about why he chose Oracle and Larry Ellison, who has also had some issues in the past. So I just want to know what was it about him that he, what did he promise? Um, and then in addition, who gets to assign who the auditors are and how will those people be sort of reviewed? Is it an elected position? Um, is this, again, moving towards social media as a public utility? 
And so I think it's very interesting to use Project Texas as a skeleton or a framework for how overall policies could work and standards could work when it comes to social media. But I I think we need, obviously, so much more detail put into it, but it does require collaboration. One thing I'll say about younger generations is we are able to collaborate in ways that previous generations maybe weren't willing to do, both politically and when it comes to tech. So I think involving young people and making them feel safe that just moving the data to America is not making many people feel much safer because the American government has not made us feel totally safe and other other social medias haven't made us feel totally safe. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm like, cool. <laughs> if we're just going to say the truth on today, <laughs> go ahead. Wow. But, and, and we're talking about this under President Joe Biden right now, right? Let's say there's different presidents and this is a law that will carry us through the next 20, 40, 50, however many years. Let's say you do get a bad faith acting president in there, and now they have all this access to the American data. And I was somebody who maybe, as a journalist, was making TikToks that was against that particular candidate. Now he's been elected to president. Will he go into that data and then find me and then arrest me as a political operative or a Chinese propagandist? We don't know, but we have to think that strongly. We have to think that way. As soon as Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee said, TikTokers are Chinese propagandists or something of the like in a tweet, she was like, if you're on it, this is what you're supporting. I was like, that is dangerous for an American politician to speak Mm -hmm. that way about other American citizens, oftentimes journalists or educators. And so to me, don't think about what the best case scenario of any of these plans are going to be. You want to think about it like a prenup, like What's the worst case going to be, right? Like right now we're all friends and we're going to put together this nice little prenup. But when it comes time for us to call that legal paperwork forward, we want that stuff to be really, really tight, right? And so that's what I think Mm -hmm. about Project Texas. If it's the prenup of data privacy, then let's really make it make sense so that it's foolproof against any administration. Love that analogy (laughs) because it's true. And so, I mean— I guess, how do you see the Biden administration balancing going after TikTok in this aggressive way, really? I mean, I think it's really just a show of I can be tough when it comes to China. Mm -hmm. So how do you see him balancing that with leaning on creators to reach (laughs) young voters? Because, I mean, simultaneously, as he's going after TikTok, he's also reaching out to creators such as yourself and like other people to be like, hey, you know. Make me cool. In like, fairness, let's do this. <laughs> Joe hasn't rang my phone since the State of the Union. Oh, so I don't know. We're well, fighting right I mean, now. But, you, but he did. <laughs> he ring did, your and phone he will. And he will same. again. And I and I I truly believe all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the Biden administration has sort of this two sides to it when it comes to the way that they're approaching social media and young people and getting people excited to vote. You have Joe Biden's advisors who have been with him for 40 years since he's been a politician, his like old time guys who are, some of them are China hawks. Some of them have that 1980s rhetoric still in their mouths talking about how these are our enemies as if China is some monolith and all the people within it are a part of that. And then you have the younger folks who are like, listen, we have seen so much AAPI hate, especially hate towards Chinese people through the coronavirus pandemic and beyond that we don't want to use this rhetoric. This idea that flew back in the 80s of like Red Scare and China Hawk being tough on China actually is not the way that the global conversation works. Leaders are more collaborative the younger that they get. They're more willing to hear each other's positions and empathize and come up with a solution that makes sense. We have had a better relationship with China in the past, and I hope that we have a better relationship with them in the future purely for global economics and stability of the world, right? Like it doesn't help us to like keep needling 
each one of these like authoritarian leaders in these countries that are our adversaries and then saying, uh, but too bad, don't do anything to us. So I think Joe needs to take a step back and remember when he invited these TikTokers and influencers to the White House so many times, what did he feel like when he was in the room when he was talking to those people? What was the effect of him inviting average folks to the White House to learn about democracy and the different things that were going on in the world? And then make decisions that are gentle to the community that supports him and supports a lot of this freedom of speech and, and like education. And then also, what are the actual problems that we have with China in this case? And how do we mitigate those without annihilation? How does strengthening privacy controls also not put us in a worse position globally? How does strengthening privacy controls not just completely kick out the people who have been ride or die for you? Mm -hmm. So in the here and now of things, how do you see this shaking out? Well, I think there was a hope that if they scared TikTokers into thinking that the ban was eminent and that they should just move their audiences themselves, that this would take care of itself. All the TikTokers would just make a YouTube page and push their folks over there, start making content over there, push them to Instagram, start making content over there. And what happened instead is people deleted their meta accounts. We saw like this huge amount of people deleting their Facebook in protest. And it's not easy to break into YouTube. It's very hard to be a YouTuber. It requires a very completely hard. different skill set um, and financial backing. So I think what we'll see is Mark Warner, because he made himself the face of it, become the fall boy in many ways for the Restrict Act. He's going to have to hold that that paper all the way through because he wanted to be the face of it. And that's just the consequence when something doesn't go right. I hope to see him get better advised and maybe also become a better listener and recognize some of the stuff he said was deductive and not true in practice and change his position a little bit. I would like to see them write data privacy laws that make sense that people could get excited about and feel are for them. I think you would see a lot of folks return to favor with those politicians. When it comes to a TikTok ban, when that happened, a lot of different apps did pop up and they sucked. It didn't work. It didn't work. I don't know how much money Clapper put in to bots that would go in oh. and the keep TikTok uh, hashtag and say, I just use Clapper. It's the same thing, but it didn't work. Oh, you know, no, no. Lemon 8 is another platform that they're saying, oh, well, I'm going to Lemon 8. Lemon 8 is also owned by ByteDance. So don't kind of waste your time if you're worried about that. Exactly right. <laughs> I think what we'll see is like the natural evolution of everything. There was a time when Facebook was everything. Then it was Instagram. Then it was YouTube. Then it was mm -hmm. the next... There will be a next thing naturally, but when you force it, you're just getting people to dig in more and more. So I like the ban on government um, devices for TikTok. I think there are certain people in this country that have jobs that make their lives more dangerous and more at risk. And maybe those folks are going to see, you know, stricter bans or um, maybe there'll be more time constraints for how long you're allowed to be on the app put in or attempted to be put in for young people. And they may try to pass that off as a win. And so, yeah, my advice to the American government would be, it's your job to take care of your people. Your people are on this platform. They have found community. They have trauma bonded through the pandemic. They have found education and opportunity. This is something they care about for my military families. This is ways that they stay in touch with their members that far exceed the ways that they were able to previously. For churches, they're talking about the online ministries that they built on TikTok because it was a more progressive place to have better conversations than the ones they were able to have before. So like, let's look at 
How many people from your state are on it or your district? How are they using it? What does it mean to them? What does it mean to the economic viability of your constituents? And then how do you most gently and with constituent forward thinking mitigate other harms? If we're going to talk harm reduction, I could talk harm reduction all day. I would love to do harm reduction with them. But it can't be harm reduction doesn't come in the form of annihilation. Annihilation never serves us. V for Congress, everyone. Never. Thank you. I will never. <laughs> never, never, never. No, I'm going to stay under the desk. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to stay under the desk. <laughs> oh, you were so quick with it, too. No. You're like, absolutely Press secretary, not. sure. You want a little friend okay. to help you understand TikTok? Give me a call. But, oh, my goodness. No, that is somebody else's job. Listen, me and three million other people are, are going to continue to hold our breath that you change your mind. But <laughs> in the meantime, thank you so much for this, Via. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Casey. And yeah, you gave some, some amazing insights. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. This is a weekly podcast, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you rate and comment as well because we love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. And providing editorial oversight is Senior VP of Entertainment, Scott Mebus. 